Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. And there's a really exciting and new release from Chess.com that I've enjoyed using. It's called Classroom. This feature allows you to easily go over a game live with a friend or a club member that you just played. And you can do so interactively on the board with both of you on video talking to each other. It's also a great way to have a lesson between a student and a coach. And you can check that out on chess.com slash classroom. Welcome to this week's episode. Before diving into today's guest, I just want to briefly mention that this Thursday, November 10th at 7 p.m. Central Time, I'll be hosting a group coaching lesson with international master Andres Toth. Again, that's this Thursday, November 10th. So there are still a couple of days to join my membership to get access to that. You can get a game reviewed by Andres himself. You don't even have to be there live. I only mentioned the date because that's the deadline for being able to submit a game for him to review during the coaching lesson. And also, there are no long-term commitments to the membership. So you can just join for this month, get your coaching from Andres, and then cancel like it's Netflix or something like that. And that's totally fine. It's up to you, but I'd love to see you there this week. The link to join the membership is in the show notes. So just go there and click the link for the membership and sign up. And I hope to see you there this Thursday. Okay, today's guest is the woman who has been the strongest female German chess player for many years, international master Elizabeth Pates. Her accomplishments include winning the 2018 European Women's Championship in Rapid Chess, representing Germany for the Women's Chess Olympiad over 10 times, creating a German-language chessable course on strategy, and she's recently written an autobiography about her life in chess, particularly her experiences as a woman. And I'm very hopeful that next year or beyond, it'll be translated into English, but we do talk about some of the themes in her book in this interview. We also talk about her reasons for playing chess, and surprisingly, it's not for the love of the game. And we also talk about what it was like growing up with a father who's a grandmaster. I hope you enjoy my interview with Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you on the show. As we're recording this, the uh, FIDE Women's Candidates Tournament is going on. And I was just curious if you have time in your schedule to watch any of it or look at any of the games. Actually, like I saw the games yesterday. I briefly clicked through some of the positions today, but I haven't watched the entire games. And mm-hmm. so far, the Chinese and the Indian are leading with one and a half out of two against the Ukrainian ladies. And well, actually, like, I don't know what to say about these results because I mean, all the participants are by chess level quite close to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very close to Anna Mutsushuk, actually. She's a good friend of mine. And I had the conversation with her like one month ago and my suggestion for her was to choose like an opening against Humpy, which is quite dynamic. 
she shows with the black pieces the um, Queen's Gambit accepted. And I was a bit surprised by this choice because there are so many lines where you don't get any dynamic position. Hmm. Instead, you get this kind of easy and boring positions, and that's what Humpy loves, and she doesn't... Uh, I mean, Anna also loves easy positions, but that's like serving the strengths of Humpy, and she lost the first game, and it was a little bit upsetting for me because I think like that Anna, like for sure, is very competitive, and maybe like a different choice of opening would have been better. So she didn't follow your advice, huh? <laughs> no, well, I mean, there's a thing is like that the open, uh, the, the queen's gambit accepted could get some dynamic positions indeed, but if white doesn't want, you don't get any dynamic position. You exchange the queens quite quickly, and that's... No, Hambi didn't exchange the queens, but yet she didn't get any dynamic troubles at all in this game, and that's what's actually, like, in my opinion, Anna is strong at, and Hampi is maybe not that great, and really tactical, dynamic, chaotic positions. And yeah, I think, in my opinion, at least, if I would play Humpy, I would try something more crazy, let's say. <laughs> what would be your uh, opening choice to play against her? I mean, I played against her in the last Monaco Grand Prix in 2019, and I beat her with Black, and I chose the King's Indian. And that's yeah. how I know that actually, like, the more uh, complicated and dynamic a position is, the more troublesome it is for Humpy. I see. Yeah. And I assume you you probably know, maybe even really well, some of, some of the women competing in this event. Is it hard to uh, have a favorite because of that? Well, thing, the thing is, like, in this tournament now running in Monaco, I'm very close to Anna. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with her sister, but I'm close to Anna because emotionally, like, we are, like, more similar, let's say. And for the other participants, I have a good relationship, too, but it's not like that we are communicating off the tournament or offside the board. So, I mean, of course, I'm rooting for Anna, and that's why I'm very, like, upset that, that she lost the first game and that she shows this opening, you know, in a way. <laughs> right, right. Uh, speaking of uh, big tournaments, um, and now and, and I want to talk now uh, uh, about your own chess journey. Um, you've represented Germany um, in over 10 chess Olympiads, if I'm not mistaken now, uh, since 1998. And, uh, Very well done. Research. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know because I think the the pandemic one was online, was it not? So I don't know if we count that. Yes, but even in the online event, I took part at least in one match. Okay. So I, okay. I haven't missed an Olympiad since 1998. Wow! Wow! Yeah, and so you just uh, recently attended this year. After attending so many, I couldn't help but wonder. I, I know this has to be a great honor each time, but is it still a thrill to attend even after number 11 or 12? Well, actually, like the team changed a lot. I used to be the youngest in the team. Now I'm, well, I wouldn't say by far, but I'm quite much the oldest. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of atmosphere. And of course, now... I'm very, let's say, I'm even more ambitious nowadays than before because now we have a quite young and promising team which is still growing. Mm -hmm. So I still have a dream that at some point we would have like four players with stable 2,400 plus and that eventually we could play for a medal. 
this was always my dream and this was never like real in a way. Hmm. But maybe now, um, yeah, it's possible because, okay, the others are younger. I just have to somehow try to um, keep my level. But in the next five years, if I manage to keep my level, then with a younger team, it's quite possible that uh, it may work that eventually we will have a team with two, four plus on all the boards. Ah, that's interesting. Do you find yourself serving as a mentor to your teammates, these younger teammates that you have now? Not really. Like I can give them some advices in a, in a way, you know, and I maybe have a better routine over them. But actually, like, I have a quite good relationship to most of them in the team. And if they play against an opponent, which I know better, in my opinion, I would give them some advice. But eventually, like, uh, I would not interfere in, in their way of thinking or anything. So I just want the team to play well. And now in India, we had a great atmosphere. And in my opinion, we had the biggest uh, chance ever to be successful we managed to be in the top 10, which in my opinion was a good result, especially for a very young team, despite my participation, because I was by far the oldest in the team. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I look forward to more events in the future because I know that these girls, since they're young, they will be growing. Yeah. So that, yeah, top 10. That's excellent. I hope your dream can come true, like you said, in the next five years or so that you can you can earn a medal. The next maybe one or two. I have Confidence, because also the German Chess Federation installed a very special program for the girls below 25. We have a so-called Power Girls program. So they get some special support financially per year for extra trainings and more tournament fees. And this gives me great hope that with the help of the financial support that they will grow faster. That's excellent. I hope it does. I hope it does. I'll be cheering you on. So yeah, I just want to talk about your um, just your early, the early part of your journey, the beginning part uh, actually with chess. I know that your your father is a grandmaster, which was um, interesting for me to hear. I would say the majority of my guests, the title player guests, uh, that's not true for them. They don't have a parent who is a GM. Uh, what was that like growing up as a kid, learning learning chess and having your dad be such a strong player? Well, it's on the one hand, it's heaven. On the other hand, it's a curse. Mm. So um, heaven in a way that you have the strongest trainer at home and you don't have to pay for that, obviously. Yeah. It's a curse like in a way that, okay, when you're a very small child, let's say you're like eight, nine or 10 years old. And then, for example, like you lose a game or you're not playing a world tournament and you see the emotions of your parents, especially of your father, who is your trainer and your father at the same moment, right? Mm. Then it's very difficult for a young kid to distinguish between whether your father is happy, I mean, whether your father is sad or angry with you. You cannot make the difference because you're too young to understand that when you lose a game, that in fact, your father or your trainer father, or your trainer mother, whatever, is suffering in the same moment. But to really interpret the suffering in this moment for a kid below 10 is impossible. So the moment you see like bad or sad emotions from your parent, you think like you didn't do the right thing. You think like your 
your parent may not even love you as much anymore because you're not doing what he or she is expecting you to do. And that's what I mean with the curse, because now I understand the moments when my father was so-called angry. He wasn't angry. He was sad. He was disappointed. He was hurt the moment I was losing a game. But when I was young, I may think that he's angry with me and he doesn't love me as much anymore because I'm not doing what he's expecting to do. And that's the thing which you don't understand when you are very small. And that's a big danger, in, in fact. And right now, when I'm teaching young kids, I'm always telling the parent the danger because I experienced it. But parents don't know about this danger because what they should do, in my opinion, is like when the child loses a game, and let's say it's a game which means a title, like a national title or a world championship title or whatever, then what they should do in this moment is they should hug the child. And that's all what it needs. They shouldn't like uh, show the sadness or the, the bad emotions because the kid may not understand the difference between being sad or being angry. And that's the golden, let's say, rule. I learned about it looking back at it 20 years ago. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that's really compassionate. And I like that a lot. How long did it take you to as a kid? I don't know, maybe maybe it wasn't until you were an adult. But as you were growing up with your father, you know, competing, and not knowing, as you said early on, whether he was sad or angry, how long did it take you to be able to tell the difference in your father's feelings? Well, I understood it only when I was like 17, 18, let's say, when I was mature enough to understand it. But I didn't understand it when I was nine or 10. You understand? I mean, I would believe that um, young kids, they learn about emotions, experience and intuition, let's say, about the moment when they cross the poverty. And this is a moment around 14, 15, 16, something like that. But before, let's say, let's say the age of 12, they may not make a difference unless they're like super kids, like with a high IQ and whatever. But in general, like once you cross the poverty and you have enough life experience, you may understand the difference. But as a young child, it's very difficult. And that's why it's very important. If the parents are like sad in the moment when the kid is losing a bit of game, all what they need to do is just to hug the child and everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you learned at a, to me, a very young age, at age five. Do you remember whether you loved chess right away or did it take some time before you developed a passion for it? You know, honestly, I never loved chess, but now comes the but. I loved the life connected to chess. I loved the kids around. I loved the people, like the kids I met, the friendships I met. I loved the society of chess. That was actually my drive. And this was, was like the thing which kept me motivated. I mean, I had two motivations. I had the motivation in a way that I was very successful. And apparently, like, I was uh, taking medals at the early age. And the second thing which was the most or the biggest motivation was like that in the chess world, I had my friends, I had the kids I could play with. While in normal life, outside of chess, I was considered like a nerd or someone who is 
different from the others, you know, like in the Forrest Gump movie. They say, like, your son is different from the others. And that's how I felt pretty much at school. But in chess, like, I felt like I'm in my world. I'm having all my friends around me. And this was, in my opinion, like, despite that I was successful, it was my biggest motivation. That's really interesting. So you said two things that your your friends, the social life that was attached to it and the competitiveness and maybe that, you know, you, you said you were you were good at it. And so maybe just striving to win. Are those the two things that that still give you the most enjoyment in chess to this day? Yes, even until today. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, um, like, you know, it was very interesting, like not long ago, like if, one week ago. I was on a kind of TV show and I met a sports psychologist. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like I met sports psychologists before in my life, but he was like saying there are like different motivation types of sportsmen. And it's not like that you need to be a certain motivation type in order to be a successful sportsman. But he names the motivation type of the relationship motivation, which is the case for me or the ambitious motivation, which is also the case for me. But mm. then there was also the individual motivation, for example, like someone who would like um, only rely to himself and to his abilities, but in a team it would be critical because he would like to take the responsibility, responsibility for himself. So, I mean, basically he was talking about different motivation types, and it was very interesting for me because... In this moment, I recognize myself, and obviously, like I'm the relation, I'm I'm the motivation type, which is a related to relationships and b to um, success. Hmm. But there are also those motivation types which are like individual sportsmen, which don't want to rely to others, and they would be the best when they just compete for themselves. When you heard the sports psychologist give those different categories, was that the first time you realized that those were your two big motivations or did, did it just already line up with what you already knew about yourself? Well, the thing is like when I described it and then the moderator asked him about my motivation, he named it and I could confirm because it was the case. I have two <laughs> motivation types. It's relationship, which is connected to the atmosphere around it. And the ambition, because I was in the early stage quite successful. And these are the two motivation types which, like, form my character or my personality. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. Growing up, as you already know, but I'm just kind of saying this for the audience, you quickly became the strongest female player in Germany. By 2002, you won the World Youth Championship in the under-18 age category. So as a top youth player during that period, what do you think was your competitive edge over other players? Well, let's say, I mean, the first time I won the World uh, Youth Championship was indeed in 2002. I was 17 years old. But at this time, I wasn't Germany's top player. I became Germany's top player in 2005. So at this time, actually, my goal was to be the German's top player. So I had, in this moment, a goal I had, which I reached in 2005 when I won the World Championship under 20. This was also the time I overtook um, our German's best player at this moment, which was Kittino Kachiani. So... This was the moment, I think, in 2005, I got the first ranked player. 
And actually, my biggest motivation was to be German number one, not necessarily to be German number one, but to be in the team competition on the first board. And this may sound funny, but when you're on the first board and you rest a game, nothing changes for you. But if you're on the second board and the first board is resting a game, you have to go up and down and up and down. And sometimes you go up and down and up and down and you have suddenly like four or five times black in a row. And this is a kind of thing which sometimes, you know, may become difficult, especially when you don't see a reason why you have to go up and down and up and down. And it was in a, in, in a certain time in Germany, like when I was number two, sometimes for me hard to understand why suddenly the first board had to take a rest, for example. And it's, at least from, from what I can say now, in, in, in back this time, I was very young to understand that. But nowadays, I, I think that uh, in Germany, at least there was this kind of mentality that if you are the first board, you can do whatever you want. And this mentality was supported by the coaches back this time. And that's sometimes, at least for me, being number two was difficult to take and That's why when I was like uh, already like close to be top top one in Germany, I tried very much to take this spot, not to suffer from any kind of decisions which were not in my power. And being number one was easier in this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. From a training perspective, do you think there was something that gave you an advantage? Did you put in more hours than your competition? Did you... I don't know, maybe have a better coach or, or anything along those lines? Actually, like, I think if you are living in a country where you don't have so much competitors, it's it's not that good. I mean, for example, like in Germany, I was uh, very quickly number two. And to be number one was, was, of course, something which you had to fight for, but not so deeply compared to Russia or Georgia or Ukraine, for example. So if I could take back the time, I think for my chess, it would have been better if I had grown up in Ukraine, Russia or Georgia, because there would have been much more girls in my strengths and I would have had to fight much, much stronger to be in the team. And this kind of motivation would have made you automatically work much harder. So I don't think it's actually an advantage to be in a country where you don't have so much competition over to be in a country like Russia, Ukraine or Georgia or China, where the competition is huge because then you really have to work very tough to even secure a spot in the, in the team. And Well, I think it was, in my case, even a disadvantage to be a German in this regard. Hmm, that's interesting. So these days, how would you describe your playing style? And do you feel it's changed over the years? You know, like it's, it's, it's a very funny thing when, when I tell people that, uh, that chess style or like it means nothing when you are as a child a dynamic or a tactical player and then as an adult you are like, someone totally different and it's very hard for for certain people to believe that but for example like when I was a child and I went to the sixth seventh or eighth floor of a building and I looked down it was totally fine 
But now if I do this in my age and I go to the sixth, seventh floor and I look <laughs> down, I feel dizzy. Hmm. And, you know, this phenomenon is not like that. I realized it for myself. My brother confirmed it to me and some people I know confirmed it to me. So what I mean is like the older you grow, maybe the more you appreciate life or the less ready you are to take risk. I mean, children, they are like their risk level is much higher over adults. I don't know why it is like this. Maybe because they are less afraid of kind of dangerous things compared to adults, which have much more experience to take those risks at that certain kind of age. So mm -hmm. for chess, actually, it's, in my opinion, quite similar. When I was a child, I was a very tactical, dynamic player. And I loved when everything was hanging and chaotic and messy and so on. <laughs> Nowadays, I think for, for my uh, adrenaline and for my pulse and everything, it's maybe better not to have these kind of crazy positions in every game because <laughs> it takes too much of my heart rate. So <laughs> I quite appreciate when, when the situation on the chessboard becomes quieter because I, I can't take it anymore in, in a way like when I was a child. So, and this actually I've realized with some of my colleagues, for example, like Anna Mutsushuk, I can tell because I have known her for so many years when she was a child and in her youth, she was a very tactical dynamic player. But nowadays she plays very solid and dry chess. And I think what she is doing is what I can confirm is like she, she grew older and maybe she's less ready to take risks and she feels more convenient with easier type of positions over those messy, chaotic type of positions where your pulse is going up, where your emotions are rising to the, to the edge. And actually like, I really think that age or experience or let's say appreciating life does have a certain influence on the chest style. That's an interesting insight. And it's funny to me that you mentioned the, uh, you know, maybe more dangerous positions is not that great for your pulse. Because uh, I kind of, I that resonated with me. This past year, I decided to start playing the Open Sicilian. And I feel like half the time in those games, I'm about to have a heart attack as as we race to to checkmate each other and i've and i've wondered i'm like is this really good for my health <laughs> so um you're the first person i've heard say that uh and and, and it really uh resonated with me so i appreciate that in any case um yeah overall though i mean that that's a fantastic insight about age having an effect on uh on playing style and uh there was just something I wanted to bring up that it was interesting to me that you had that you discussed in an interview with Dina Belenkaya. Um, I thought it was fascinating and I wanted to maybe dive into it a little bit. So her question was based on, I think, on the fact that in last year in 2021, between May and December, you had a significant rating climb of about 50 points, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And she asked you about that and you said you attributed this to your experience coaching some strong students. Can you talk about that and why you think that helped you so much? Well, first of all, like when Corona happened in 2020, everything changed for everybody. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was a quite tough year because despite the fact that suddenly we realized that there were no tournaments available and we had zero income, also some private things didn't go well in this point or at this point. And then actually, like, since my, my father, he, 
he was wise enough not only to teach me chess, but also to teach me how to teach. It helped me in a way because in 2020, like I took over some of his children and then I uh, got suddenly, because I was streaming with Anna Mutsushuk on Twitch and I was sometimes doing some tutorials on, on the stream. And suddenly like I got offers from uh, different people to teach and then, okay, I got offered some people to teach, uh, to teach with, which are like decent chess players with 2100 or even 22 or 23. And then I started to actually read all these books of, uh, of Turetsky and of uh, Yusupov, which I had seen before, but I never really dared to study. But since I, I'm like, you know, German mentality means like you never go to a lesson unprepared. It's not like you go to a lesson and you get something out of your book and you show it. When I go to a lesson, I'm super prepared. I know exactly what I show and I, I study it before. And so I, be I began to study all this kind of Turetsky and Yusupov stuff. And suddenly like I got so much input of like endings and middle games and techniques. And suddenly, like, I, I got like a kind of repetition of all the basics, which I have maybe seen before, but suddenly I did it like in a frequent way because I had one pupil who had been teaching for six hours a week. And besides teaching him for six hours a week, I had another, let's say, like three to four hours to prepare the lessons, maybe sometimes even more because I had to learn myself what I'm teaching him later, obviously, right? Yeah. So and suddenly, like, I was uh, taking so much more chess lessons by myself than <laughs> I did beforehand in a way. And actually, probably this helped me because in 2021, okay, I played some tournaments to get a warm-up, but suddenly, like, I played pretty well chess in a way, and it was probably the best year of my life and I can't explain it differently. It must be connected to that. Did you feel like you were maybe filling in some gaps that, you know, hadn't been filled or, or was it something different than that? I think, you know, it was the first time in my life when I studied chess seriously by myself because, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe like a little bit shameful to say that, but you know, women chess players, they tend to always have coaches and they train always with some someone. But to train by themselves is like something which is more difficult. I don't know why it is like this, but it is like this in a way. Hmm. And uh, I think in 2020, it was the first time in my life when I did seriously work on chess strategy, techniques and endings by myself. I used to work by myself beforehand, but mainly only on openings and on preparation, like for the tournaments, but never on technical middle game, end game strategies, to, to be honest, because for that, there was always like a coach around me. And maybe this was something which was helpful. I don't know. I can't <laughs> say, but this is the only explanation I have. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you've said that you've never been that interested in memorizing a lot of opening theory. And uh, so I'm guessing that if openings maybe aren't like your, your passion, say, within studying chess, where do you feel your strengths lie as a player? 
Well, actually, like, I always hated to learn theory so much. But <laughs> now comes the but. You know, I always, let's say I'm one of the players, I can play anything. And the first move for white, for black, and I can play any kind of structure. And since, like, I never was fond of learning openings, I got a good feeling for all kind of structures. And maybe this is my benefit. So if my coach tells me like, okay, you play C4, knight F3 and G3. And the next game I should play E4, knight F3 and D4. And the next game I should play D4, bishop F4 and E3. That was fine to me because like I got so much used to play different structures in every game that I was not afraid to face the kind of structure, a kind of position I haven't seen before. So I got so much experience in different structures and openings and positions that I learned or let's say that I got used to to be flexible. And that's why always like I can tell you that uh, coaches love to work with me because they can tell me anything as at as long as it's convincing, I would take it, you know, <laughs> that's all. I mean, they should just tell me like, okay, I have an opening for you. Is that great? And then they tell me like, you don't have to learn much. And they're like, it's even better, you know, and then <laughs> they get all my attention. And that's actually how it works in my case. So I have a coach from, from France and he had been helping me a lot and he's responsible for my successes, especially in 2021. But what I really love about him is that that he knows what I want from him. I want from him an opening preparation where I don't have to learn much and for now he's doing great in that. <laughs> so if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that like just doing a wide variety and playing a wide variety of openings is what gave you, is that what gave you that confidence in a lot of different structures and familiarity? With that them? gives you the security not to be afraid of something new. Mm. But and also this gives you also the advantage if you always play the same, you know that your opponent is preparing. And against me, nobody likes to prepare because they don't know what to expect. <laughs> so I mean, like I already got the reputation. I know it for my colleagues. You know, like for example, like Katya Lakno says, like Lisa, why to prepare against you? You play everything, and that's what I want to hear. You know, because. Actually, like people don't really want to prepare against me because they know that they can expect everything. And that's how I avoid to run into any kind of deep preparations from home, like with super engines or whatever, whatsoever. And this gives me already a better feeling because I know that whatever I'm playing on the board, it's like a, let's say, 10 to 50% probability that they checked it. And even if they checked it, they wouldn't check it deeply because they have to check so many things as well. <laughs> right. And that helps. Wow, that's fascinating. I really like that. These days, what motivates you to compete? I know you mentioned in our discussion before this that you don't compete a whole lot, but you're still you're still on the scene competing. Uh, is it just uh, a pure love of the game at this point or do you have any goals for yourself? Well, actually, nowadays it's very difficult for me to, to play chess, even because since the war happened in, in Ukraine, it's, it's difficult for me because somehow I feel like now to play chess is, is feeling to me wrong because, you know, I'm, I'm someone, I see chess as a kind of sport and I see it as a kind of definition that every culture, every country is coming together and to compete. 
And already like the fact that I'm playing now in tournaments where Russian players are not allowed is difficult for me because for me, like all these players, and I have a lot of friends from Russia and I have a lot of friends from Ukraine. But the moment when I see that some of them cannot play, it, it doesn't feel the same because for me, the phrase of FIDE, which is saying like against Unasumos, this is like how I identify myself as a chess player. And when I see that suddenly like we have the tournaments where certain groups of countries are not allowed, it it, it doesn't feel the same for me. And actually it, it influences my mental ability much stronger than I expected because I mean, Probably like 2022 is the worst year of my life when I speak about my chess level. But for me, nowadays, it feels like playing chess, it feels a bit surreal because I would like to have the state when everybody could come, when everybody is friendly together, when everybody could sit on the same table, when everybody could play a game of chess. And this is what I'm missing and I hope it will change. Yeah, that's it is a sad um, situation right now, and uh, that makes a lot of sense why why it doesn't feel quite right to you at this point. Uh, and hopefully, that does change uh, sooner than later. Hopefully, um, I want to talk about uh, a book that you just wrote. A book that, as I understand, is about your your own chess life. First of all, I have a lot of questions about it. <laughs> uh, but what to start? What made you decide to write about your story? Well, actually, like, it's not like that I decided to write a book about myself or my autobiography, but it was, um, you know, like we have in so many different editor companies. And at some point it was very strange to me, but after like tw 2021, when I had this great tournament in, in Riga, I got like five or six different emails from different editing companies to propose me to write a book. And suddenly like, I had, had to choose from them and I had to think whether I want this or not. And then I was doing some investigations and eventually I, I decided to go with this editing company from the West End. That's how they called. And then I decided to meet them and I was speaking to them and they were telling me about the idea. And I said like, okay, maybe it's a good motivational thing to write about me or my life as a chess player because... I didn't want to have a chess book like to, to speak about openings or middle games or end games. This was not my goal. I wanted rather to write about how it is to be a woman in a society which is male-dominated. And that's what chess is about. So I wanted to, 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 to give a kind of timeline how I went through all this, how I could cope with that, how I could get like into that how i could fight it so i was writing basically about all the kind of things connected to it and i thought like that this kind of book could be good guidelines to those women or young ladies who want to do something which is by society or by any means something male dominated it doesn't mean to be chess but can be like anything which is male dominated even like physics or mathematics or whatever so I thought like it could help actually those young ladies to, to make a better choice or to, to, to understand that everything is possible and it doesn't make a difference whether there is 90% of men and only 10% of women doing this. 
That's a great, great subject. And I have more questions about that in a moment. Did you ever consider writing a book on that subject before you got those proposals? Well, at some point, like, I was thinking about that, but I was not sure that I could do it myself. And then when I got the help offered, I thought, like, that's great because I don't have to do it by myself. I have people helping me. And this was making everything a lot easier. But I have been thinking about that beforehand because I thought, like, it's a good motivation for those who want to do something, as I said, which is like male dominated and it's not necessarily chess. It can also be trots and other kind of board games or other kind of subjects, which are totally male dominated to give some confidence and some trust. So yeah, I was thinking about that beforehand, but with the helping offer, it was a lot easier to take this decision. Yeah. I'd love for you to just maybe, if you could share uh, maybe one interesting story or, you know, moment from that book that you enjoyed writing about that stands out to you as you reflect back on it, uh, in particular, because uh, I know most of the English speakers listening to this podcast uh, won't be able to read it at the moment because the book's only available in German at this time. Uh, so since that's the case, um, perhaps you can, uh, still give them like maybe a little, a little flavor of it by sharing, uh, either maybe just one of the, the lessons that you, you know, share in the book or an interesting story or something along those lines. Okay. The title of my book, if I translated it correctly, it says like the one who does a prima loot mistake. So the mistake before the last mistake is winning. And uh, in my first chapter, I concentrate on the matter of doing mistakes and how to cope with that. And what I realized is like that when you learn chess at a young age, you get confronted to the topic of mistakes very, very, very early. And you get a much better relationship to the topic of mistakes because when you are like a child and you do something wrong. Usually you, the parents are invited to the school and then they have to deal with that. But when you do a mistake at the chess game, you lose a game and then you have to cope with this pain, which you feel in this moment. So when you learn chess at the early age, you learn how to cope with defeats, with bad experience, with strategies and so on. And this kind of lesson, which I learned at the very early stage, for example, like I missed three world championship titles in the last game because I lost all of them. And that's how I missed the title. And the pain I felt at this moment, the pain was huge, but I had to deal with that myself. My parents couldn't help me with that pain. But this kind of experience made me much, much stronger. And when I was an adult and I had to suffer from that experience or strategy, strategies which always can happen in your life it was easier for me to to race again and to, to 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 keep on because i knew that things will change and things will go on and there will be another chance and so on and this kind of lesson like which i learned at the early stage gave me a very good relationship to the topic of mistakes because even if i do nowadays mistakes and i know i can't take them back because a mistake at chess, I can't take back. I did the move and that's it. This kind of experience actually gave me a good relationship to, to, to mistakes and I can handle them much better and I can 
still always rise and keep on going. And I'm writing about this relationship on mistakes in my book. And I think this is something, or I would even suggest this is the greatest lesson you learn with chess. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. That's fantastic. You mentioned to me before this interview that your life as a woman in chess was much different than what's portrayed in The Queen's Gambit with Beth Harmon's life. Can you give one example of what's in that show that isn't really accurate or reflective of your own experience? Well, first of all, like The Queen's Gambit was the greatest thing which could happen to chess because after The Queen's Gambit, a lot of people got an idea about chess and started to have chess lessons. But, you know, the funniest part was like that when the Queen's Gambit was running on Netflix, like my colleagues and me, we got a lot of offers of people who want to learn chess. Hmm. And they did some lessons for like a couple of weeks. And then they realized that they can't become world champion in only seven hours because <laughs> the Queen's Gambit was running about seven hours, let's say, you know. <laughs> right. So I understood it takes more than like seven episodes to become a world champion, which was very funny to see because a lot of students stopped after two or three months of lesson because I understood it's much, much harder than they expected, right? Right. So this was the first thing. The second thing is like that the Queen's Gambit had nothing to do with real chess in a way that if you want to show chess on the TV, then you may show a game and in this game, 20 minutes, nothing happens because one side is thinking, 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 and there is no gesture, there is no physical action, there is no uh, eye contact, there's nothing because in a real chess game there is simply nothing but one side is thinking for 20 minutes and the other side is waiting for the move, right? But if you would show this on TV, then obviously the, the person who is watching it would click to some different channel because nothing is happening. Right. So what I want to say is like that you cannot show chess as it is on TV because you would not find spectators. That's that's one thing which makes like the Queen's Gambit like rather a fairy tale than something real because it's just not the case that you would see chess as it was shown on Netflix. But that's that's all right, because they had to do it like this, otherwise the Netflix series would have been interesting at all. And the second thing is like that in the Netflix series, like the woman was very quickly becoming like a world champion or like beating the strongest players in the world. This was always a dream of us. And this was a dream of the father of Polga who did the experiment with his three daughters to, to train them like non-limited. And Judith eventually managed to become top 10. But until now, it was never close to get like one woman who could climb the title. So this is something which is a dream and I'm not sure this is ever coming through. Maybe it may be more realistic when the statistics would be 50-50 and not 90% to 10% as we have it now. But yeah, I'm not even sure what was your question, but I wanted to <laughs> say like that um, this is uh, there's a difference between the series and, and real chess. 
Yeah, no, that's those are all great points. Yeah, I guess another thing I was also curious about was um, just how Beth is portrayed uh, in her own experience in this in this chess world that she dives into as a woman. I think you said to me that it wasn't really reflect. I think you meant you meant it in both ways, like one in all the chess ways that you talked about, but then also just as a woman in chess that it wasn't really reflective of what most women go through. And I was wondering if you had uh, one example of that, that, you know, didn't really seem real in Beth's experience compared to what you had. Well, Beth actually experienced in this series that uh, like a lot of men wouldn't take her serious at the beginning, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm. And they had a different approach. This changed because, I mean, in times of Bobby Fischer and Kasparov, they were, I mean, those guys did a lot of, well, let's say, not nice comments about women playing chess. That attitude changed because our society became more equal in this regard. So I wouldn't say that we suffer so much on sexism anymore these days, even so some some American players would definitely disagree because we had this incident with uh, Ilya Smirin now in the Grand Prix, in the Women's Grand Prix. Even mm-hmm. so, personally speaking, I didn't uh, consider this being like that bad as it was pushed on Twitter, to be honest. But let's put this aside. I mean, um, in this series, like there was, of course, the issue that... Uh, they wouldn't take Beth Harmon serious at the beginning. At least that was my feeling. And nowadays, actually, it, it changed, you know. Like, if a woman is playing successfully, it's not something uh, surprising because it can happen. And I, I know a lot of my colleagues who won very strong open male or, like, mixed tournaments, like Monica Zochko at some point won an open tournament. I'm not sure it was in Norway or somewhere else. So this actually happened and it would not be discriminated at all. It would have been something which is considered to be normal nowadays. But yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not too sure what your question about (laughs) what I, what I want to say is like, it's not like this anymore, like as it is shown in the movie. And I'm not even sure that the Netflix series was so much about chess. It was rather about the woman in the male-dominated world. And mm-hmm. chess was just a kind of extra. And since chess stands for something intellectual and smart and uh, cultural, it's very good to, to put it as a kind of extra to show how a woman would cope in a world dominated by men. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, those, that's a great response. So I just have a final few questions for you, Elizabeth, and they're not uh, actually not, not chess related, really, just a, a little bit just about your own, the other parts of your life, um, just to kind of know a little bit about you in that way. So I know you've lived in several countries in your life. Um, you listed uh, Germany, Turkey, and Italy. And uh, just a fun question, if you could live in another country for a brief period, which one would it be? That's an interesting question, actually. I think I would choose something Asian like Thailand. I have been to Thailand a couple of times. And, you know, in Thailand, maybe, you know, it it sounds funny, but sometimes it's actually an advantage if you don't understand the people and the people don't understand you. (laughs) You have just much more freedom. And Thailand would be a country where you don't speak the language and they may not understand German and actually like you would have more peace. But in, in, in general, like 
in Asia, there are some countries where you feel this kind of karma and this peace. I felt it particularly like a lot in India, but not when it comes to travel management and it's the biggest chaos on the world. But in, in, in fact that, um, if I could choose a country where I would live in, I would probably choose a country where I don't speak the language and they don't understand me. So Thailand seems quite nice because this Asian mentality is a very kind and calm mentality. You know, mm. like you do a smile, you, you, you make this kind of crossing with their hands to appreciate something and you don't have this feeling that it's about the fight or it's about aggression. And that's what I really love about Thailand, especially, and maybe also about Buddhism. That's a great answer. When you're not playing chess, what's something that you love to do in your free time? I usually like love to swim. I'm living close to some lakes, but now it's too cold because the summertime is over. And not long ago, I bought um, indoor cycling bike. So what I'm doing now is some kind of indoor cycling and with the help of YouTube, I have some indoor cycling courses, which I'm attending to by myself at home. <laughs> and it gives me great joy. That's great. So I'm a huge fan of music. So I got excited when I realized that you had um, a background in music. You've, you've been a singer. And so I assume that you just have a passion for music in general. So on that subject, who are some of your favorite artists or bands? Actually, like, you know, I always love to sing myself, especially when it comes to kind of opera style music. Listening music, um, you know, it may sound very strange, but I was always a big fan on Russian rock and Russian mm. pop. But I got connected with that when I was 15. I was playing in the World Championship under 20 in Armenia. And on the floor where I was living with them kind of, uh, native Russian players. There was some Canadian guy from uh, from Russia and he was showing me some Russian pop and I got so much fond of that that since the age of 15 I always loved Russian pop and Russian rock and Russian folklore. And yeah, even nowadays if I would choose my favorite songs I would still go for Russian rock over everything and I think like I cannot even give you any names of modern nowadays music because the music I'm listening to is connected to all Soviet songs, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Do you speak Russian? Yes, I speak Russian fluently. I mean, not like English, of course, like what we are doing now, I would not be able to do in such a good way in Russian, but it's enough to have a normal conversation and to, to get along when I, I'm in Russia. Okay, so you know you can understand the lyrics then when you when yeah you yeah, yeah I can I can okay yeah that helps a lot right <laughs> no that, that that's of course because I mean like, it's not like I'm listening to Russian songs only because of the melody and everything I also understand quite some bit of the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense that's really interesting I love it Elizabeth I had a, a great conversation with you um, and I really appreciate your time and insights as is the case with uh, pretty much every guest that I interview I wish. I wish I had a whole other hour to talk about all this stuff. It's it's really fascinating to hear all of your stories and um, insights on chess. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and, and talking with me. And I'm sure everyone listening really enjoyed it as well. Thank you a lot. 
Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.